The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to another instalment of The Basics. Last time, we talked about blank verse, particularly when it's unrhymed, and about the various extra tools that Shakespeare uses to keep it interesting. We discussed the idea of masculine and feminine endings and how those can work, and we also looked at the sejura, and how a little pause or break can have its own effect on a line of verse. At various times in the podcast, I've talked about how Hamlet is in many ways a play about regime change, and how it took place at a time when Shakespeare's world was shifting from the Middle Ages into the Renaissance. Of course, it's not like someone flipped a switch and the world chose to identify itself differently, but Hamlet is a play that does feel like it's taking place at a pivotal moment. Even the language of the play is so extraordinary, you can almost feel Shakespeare wrestling with the limits of blank verse, twisting it and manipulating it to an extraordinary extent. Amazingly, he even gives us a hint of what kind of dramatic verse used to appear on stage. When the players come, there's a lot of talk about how long it is since they've been seen, and much discussion of the various old classics and chestnuts that they often perform. Cleverly, as if to show us just how far he's come since those older plays, Shakespeare gives us a good deal of it in The Mousetrap. The lines of this fake play within the play are rhymed, and the phrases all last about the length of a single line, so that we get a very particular dose of iambic pentameter in the rhythm as it goes along. This is how the player King starts off his bit of the play. Full thirty times hath Phoebus' cart gone round, Neptune salt wash and tell us orbit ground, and thirty dozen moons with borrowed sheen, about the world have times twelve thirties been, since love our hearts and hymen did our hands unite commutual in most sacred bands. Now I paused a little bit between all of those just to break them up to give you a real sense of how strict that rhythm is, but there's a kind of innocence almost to how plodding and simple this text is. Perhaps Shakespeare's audience would have recognised it as old-fashioned. They definitely wouldn't have been leaving the theatre quoting this extraordinary piece of poetry. At the end of the very same scene, we have a mini-soliloquy from Hamlet as he surveys the wreckage of his stunt and plans his next move. "'Tis now the very witching time of night, when churchyards yawn and hell itself breathes out contagion to this world. Now could I drink hot blood." and do such bitter business as the day would quake to look on. Soft, now to my mother. Believe it or not, this is almost exactly the same rhythm as the player king's speech. But it flows more, it doesn't rhyme, and it's just a whole lot more natural and dynamic. If you were counting the feet in each line, you'd of course have found that two of them have more syllables than they should. There's a whole extra foot in one of them. Shakespeare really makes us notice the phrase hot blood by making it the sixth of five feet in a line. So it's not really pentameter at that point at all anymore. Contagion to this world now could I drink. Hot blood. Now in the flow of things you'd never say it like that. But the words hot blood really pop out even more violently because they're a deliberate extra within the line. This is already a shocking image, but the rhythm compounds this image and makes it even more dramatic. At the end of just that little bit I read, we also have another feminine ending. The whole line goes, Would quake to look on soft now to my mother. If that's not a perfect example of a feminine ending, I don't know what is. 
The verse in Hamlet is just another tool that Shakespeare uses to enhance the excitement of the play. Even within the text of the murder of Gonzago, the mousetrap, Shakespeare can't resist breaking the monotony of that basic rhythm now and again. For example, when the Queen interrupts the King, they share a line, the rhythm, and there's a transfer of attention and focus. The King has been saying, Faith, I must leave thee, love, and shortly too, my operant powers their functions leave to do. And thou shalt live in this fair world behind, honoured, beloved, and haply one as kind, for husband shalt thou, oh, confound the rest, such love must needs be treason in my breast. In second husband let me be accursed, none wed the second but who killed the first. On the show notes pages of the website, I do my best to lay the text out in such a way that any time a line of verse is shared, it's obvious. When this happens, it's critical that the rhythm be maintained, or if two actors choose to break it, that they do so in a way that makes things even more dynamic. Maybe the clearest example of this kind of sharing, and how effective it can be, is in the closet scene, which is Act 3, Scene 4, when Hamlet is arguing with Gertrude. There are at least ten lines of verse shared, split up between mother and son, and the effect is very tense indeed. Hamlet has just stamped Polonius, and Gertrude is justifiably concerned for her own life. Hamlet's operating at this fever pitch, and this frenzy is not helped by the appearance, of course, of his dead father. So all of this tension is woven into the verse in extraordinary ways. I challenge you to go and count them, find them, see what's going on between them, because that sort of shared energy is really what makes the scene itself so dramatic. For all the shared lines, there are probably as many that stop short or run over, so that we are never likely to be lulled in the same kind of rhythm as we hear in the player's scene. Shakespeare is a wizard with these rhythms, to the extent that you could happily forget that he's writing in verse at all. This play in particular is a bravura display of all of his skills. Think of the player king describing Troy and then Hamlet's soliloquy later in the same scene in which he wonders at how this stranger can produce emotion for a long dead monarch while he feels so stunted thinking about his own dead father. Again, the styles of these two pieces of verse, even though they're in the same rhythm, probably couldn't be more different, but their juxtaposition is what makes the play exciting. Now, speaking of the soliloquy, it's no harm to mention exactly what such a thing might be. Essentially, a soliloquy is a speech given by a character in which we get a look at what they're thinking about. Hamlet's soliloquies are fascinating because here again, Shakespeare is pushing up against the form. While the convention might be that a soliloquy is spoken by a character when they are totally alone, Hamlet is, is full of spies and eavesdroppers. Hamlet is definitely unknown for some of them. One of them starts with him saying, now I am alone. But that's not always the case. Claudius also gets his own soliloquy, during which he confirms that he is indeed the murderer, in case we had any doubts left. But even during this, when he lapses into prayer, Hamlet sneaks in and almost kills him. Of course, the most famous soliloquy in the play, already an example last time for its extraordinary rhythms in its verse, is to be or not to be most famous soliloquy in all of Shakespeare, perhaps. And Hamlet is very much not alone. Ophelia is wandering around with her book, and Polonius and Claudius are hiding behind the curtain to listen in. A brilliant friend of mine is an Irish actor who once played Hamlet, and he told an amazing story of a particularly unruly crowd one night. 
they were teenagers on a school trip and perhaps they weren't the most interested audience ever to see the play. When he came to the beginning of this speech and he said to be or not to be, some wag among them piped up, that is the question. My friend answered, that is the question, as if acknowledging that he knew that they were listening in, that they were all in the room together, that he could hear them and they could hear him and so on. And the energy in the room shifted entirely. And this crowd converted themselves into an amazingly focused, attentive audience. It's worth bearing this in mind in terms of soliloquies. Yes, the character is somehow alone, or a bit alone, and certainly not bothered with anybody who might be listening. But it's also a chance for the actor to communicate directly with the audience. Always bear in mind that Shakespeare's plays were mostly conceived for performance by daylight, on a stage thrust out into a big crowd of standing audience members. As my friend's example illustrates, it's no harm to acknowledge that they're there. Now, Hamlet is about 70% verse. The vast majority of this is iambic pentameter, whether rhymed or blank verse. It is a play that has very little music in it. There are no formal songs or dances in the play, as one almost finds in any of Shakespeare's comedies. The few songs that do appear are from Ophelia and then from the Gravedigger, both for very specific effects. And you can stay tuned to the main podcast for these because they're still to come. As I've mentioned, the verse in Hamlet is incredibly varied, as Shakespeare reaches the very height of his dramatic powers. Of course, there's the other 30% of the play, and that's in prose. And that will be the subject of our next episode of The Basics. These new episodes will continue each and every Thursday, and of course, if you haven't heard, I'm initiating something between a book club and a readathon, working our way through Shakespeare's complete works for the rest of this year. Those episodes will happen on Saturdays, and you can find more information about them on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. If you have any particular questions, or can think of a specific idea that you'd like covered in one of these episodes of The Basics, please feel free to get in touch. You can do so via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all at Hamlet Podcast, or of course, the website itself.